two readings from the Christian scriptures this morning. The first one from 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter is talking about suffering for doing right. He writes, Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the faith the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Then we read from the Acts of the Apostles, an occasion where one did suffer for doing good. His name is Stephen, and his story is found in Acts chapters 6 and 7. He's one of the early deacons and is, after appointed, very effective in his ministry and, as a result, is brought before the religious council. Filled with the Holy Spirit... Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But the council covered their ears and with a loud shout rushed together against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he died. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. That amidst the beauty, the music, the pageantry, the ritual of weekly worship, that the spirit of love, this unfettered spirit that is both beautiful and dangerous might overcome us and call us this Memorial Day weekend to new levels of what it means to act faithfully in your world. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. child from Highland recently uh, noticed the plaques that are in the small north, narthex that are there to memorialize the war dead. What are these plaques, she asked. One of the ushers said, well, those are for Highland members who died in the service. To which the child responded, would that be the 8.30 service or the 9.30 service, 11 o'clock service? There is actually a story in the book of Acts. If you're looking for a patron saint, uh, look no farther than Eutychus. Paul preached apparently a really long sermon. They're on the third floor of a building, and Eutychus was sitting in the windowsill, fell asleep, and fell out the window and died. So if you're looking for a patron saint of people who can't endure long sermons, look no farther 
On this Memorial Day weekend, we do pause to honor and grieve Highland's war dead, to talk about their courage and give thanks for their sacrifice. But this week, as we look at these lectionary readings, we also are aware of a different kind of courage, the courage to storm the beaches of conflict and hate, not with guns and sabers, but with love and forgiveness. It is a different way. We sing of a place of comfort and peace near to the heart of God, and it is true. But it is also a call to live a life and be ready, as Peter said, to make a defense for the faith that is in us when that moment comes. The story from Acts tells of the early church, just after Jesus has been ascended into heaven and they're left with nothing, no, no building, no, no set of rules or regulations. How do we order ourselves together? They decided that they would call seven people to serve as the first deacons, among them a man named Stephen who was full of wisdom and understanding. They did signs and wonders which previous weeks we talked about were those ordinary acts of love and sacrifice and community. And because of their faith, because of how they lived into what they most deeply believed, Luke tells us that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, the religious establishment, of course, couldn't have this. The religion of oppression could not have a a religion of, of love and inclusion, so they wanted to tamp down on this. Luke writes they couldn't withstand Stephen's wisdom, so they plotted. They created some lies. They brought him before the temple council, and they gave him an opportunity to respond to the temple's charges. Now, his defense is long. Sometime when you've got a while, if if you're having insomnia, read Acts chapter 6 and 7. Stephen kind of lulls with this sing-song survey of Jewish history all through the story of the Old Testament. It almost feels like kind of a filibuster, but they called it a sermon. He starts with Abraham all the way back to the beginning and talks about how Abraham came out of the land to a land that God was going to show him, but how his descendants were enslaved and mistreated. He tells the story of Joseph, which takes... 20 chapters in the book of Genesis, he tells the story of Joseph, the 11th of the 12 sons of Jacob, and how he was mistreated by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt, and how God used that to deliver them. He tells the whole story. He tells the story of Moses. He doesn't leave anything out. The bulrushes, the how Moses killed someone, the burning bush, the call, the 40 years in the wilderness, and how the people became impatient how they began to disobey, how they longed to go back to Egypt. He tells the story of Joshua and David and the tabernacle that God was with them and tells the story of Solomon. It's really the first hint that I'm aware of where Solomon is not looked down favorably, but in fact kind of critically. He built a house for God made with human hands, although we know God doesn't live in human houses, says Stephen. And finally, mercifully, Stephen gets to this point. I'm sure you know that feeling. When are you going to get to the point? This is what he said to them. You think you know this story. 
You think you know your place in this story. But I'm here to tell you today, you're not the oppressor. You're, you're not the oppressed. You are the oppressor. You're not Abraham. You're the people who mistreated Abraham. You're not Joseph. You're the brothers who sold him into slavery. You're not Moses. You're Pharaoh who won't let God's people go. You're like Solomon. You try to defend God and protect God and put God in a box and be God's PR managers, which makes you the opponents of the love and the way, this new way of God, of unity and hope and of a new day. What kind of courage does it take to stand up and speak that kind of confrontational, oppositional word to people who hold the power of life and death over you? What if when you joined Highland Baptist Church, we said to you, welcome to our church. Here, we're going to take your picture for the bulletin board and the newsletter. And by the way, here are your offering envelopes. And let's get you into a committee. And by the way, we do want you as a Christ follower to bear love and light into the world, to bless and to heal others. And I, I guess we probably ought to tell you, we need to warn you, frankly, that sometimes there will be an occasion where you're in school or at work, in your neighborhood, sometimes in your family, sometimes it might be here at church, or it might be in the larger political sphere of the world, there might be a time when you cannot be silent. When you have to speak the word of confrontation, when you have to oppose, when you have to use your courage to speak truth to power, and let's be candid in full disclosure, it's probably going to get you in trouble. But welcome to the church. If you'll just sign right here, we'll be. That is the call. There have been a few times in my life that people have perceived as being courageous. Uh, Jan and David are here. They remember 20-some years ago when I wrote what was probably my first op-ed piece, if you can imagine. Um, it was to offer a minority view about gay and lesbian people in the city of Austin where there was a major conflict over that issue. Um, and I, I was really nervy. I sent it without sending it through the filter of my fine editor, uh, my wife. Um, I just wrote it and hit the send button before I thought twice about it. And it was in the paper the next day, and the rest was history. It, it created quite a stir. There was a, an occasion, another occasion, where uh, I attended Roy Honeycutt's funeral. Some of you remember we walked into the room, and the entire room was on one side of the funeral uh, home. There was one person sitting on the other side. It was the current president of the Baptist Seminary. And I knew what I had to do. I had to go sit with him because no one should sit by themselves at a funeral. Some of you uh, remember uh, the Walmart hubbub from a few years ago. I'm still hearing about that one. In every instance that people have said to me, that was a courageous thing to do. 
I was always surprised because I was never trying to be courageous. I was just doing what the Spirit led me to do. And I have a feeling that's exactly what happened to Stephen. He didn't wake up that morning and think, I think I'll be the first martyr for the Christian church. He just said and did what was his to do. He bore the love. When, it, when conflict came, he tried to create inclusion. And when conflict resisted, he offered himself and his word. You see, when you get this stuff, you don't just believe it in your head. You live it with your life. You're not just a quoter of the word, a reader of the word. We are, as it says on the back of our sanctuary, doers of the word and not hearers only. We're not just trying to be nice. Joining a church and being part of a body of Christ isn't just about being nice, although I would like for some of you to be a little nicer, but (laughs) it's about having the courage to confront whatever divides us in this world, whatever demonizes, whatever breaks us apart and destroys. Now, some of you are wired for this. Some of you love the confrontation. In fact, I wonder sometimes if some of you didn't become Christians just to have an excuse to be confronted, whatever. That's good. We're glad to have you. But others of us kind of operate out of a different spirit. The way we express courage will look different. We convey love rather than be confrontive in that love. We're relentless to love neighbors in the face of actions and policies that ignore and devalue. We embody that generosity when others and our culture says it's all about us, ourselves and our own nation. We say, no, it's about something bigger. We live it out. Well, the religious institution, the authorities, couldn't stand Stephen's message. It threatened them at their core. Not only did it threaten their survival, it threatened their whole worldview. So they drug him out of the city and they stoned him to death. You surely are noticing the parallels between the story of Stephen and the story of Jesus. Coming in love, bearing this word, and finding opposition. Receiving that opposition and inviting the opposition to repent, to see a different way, and being resisted to the point of death. And then this. The words on the lips of both Jesus and Stephen. Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen, Lord, don't lay this sin against them. To have the courage not only to confront, but the courage to forgive, to love in the face of death, to to love. Where, Where does that come from? Where does courage to forgive someone who's aiming a rock at your head come from? Maybe for you it's not a rock. Maybe it's someone who has humiliated you. Maybe it's someone who has shamed you. 
Maybe it's someone who's done something to you that you didn't deserve. Maybe you're going through a divorce right now, or maybe someone's harmed your reputation. This week I'm working on this sermon. I'm sitting with the story of Stephen, and as if on cue, someone comes in, has made an appointment, comes in and asks me the question, I need to know how I can forgive my former employee. I knew his story. I knew that a year earlier, his employer uh, had just summarily fired him, created false charges against him, and fired him. I knew how it had devastated him financially and emotionally, his career, his, his sense of calling. It was all wrapped up together, and it was suddenly taken from him. And he's asking me, how can I get to a place of forgiveness? I don't know, I said. But I wonder if it has something to do with being willing, instead of harboring this grudge, to ask God to give you the eyes to see those who did you wrong in a way that shows who they really are, to see them for who they really are. That these are people who are operating from a place of fear and greed and a need to control that creates this heartlessness and inhumanity in them. He said to me, what a terrible place to have to live. That's right, I said. Would you want to trade places with them? If you could be paid twice what you were paid before, would you take their job? He said, not in a million years. And from that place, he was able to say, I can not only forgive them, I can pray for them. I can... I can love them. I can have empathy for them. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when people revile you and curse you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. The writer of 1 Peter picks up on it. If you suffer for doing what's right, blessed are you. And Peter then invites us to be not like them, but to be like Christ. To be people of love. In your heart, he says, sanctify Christ as Lord. We can say those words. We've said those kind of words forever. What does it mean to say Christ is Lord? It means we operate out of an entirely different operating system. We, we have a different frame of reference. And it becomes for us not drudgery, but gift. We could destroy our souls by harboring grudges. But faithful acts have the courage to not only stand and confront evil, but to be able to forgive those who have harmed us. Through Richard Rohr, I learned of this prayer that Father Thomas Keating offered some years ago. It's called, of all things, the welcoming prayer. 
This is a hard prayer. But think about how liberated and how revolutionized we would be individually and as a church if we could live out of this prayer. The prayer says this. Welcome. 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 I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, all feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, for esteem, for approval, for pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, any condition, any person, including myself. And I open to the love and presence of God and God's actions within. I don't practice what I preach. And on those occasions when I do practice it, I sound like a beginning violin player, squeaky and missing notes here and there. And sometimes, frankly, I wonder, what good do faithful acts even do? What could they, what can they create? Is this kind of welcoming prayer just crazy talk? You've heard the saying, I'm sure, that my enemy is my brother or sister who has forgotten our relationship. My enemy is my brother or sister who's forgotten our relationship. To invite that recognition of our kinship, to realize our common heritage and our common destiny, it's just woven through everything we've said today. That gospel of John where Jesus is praying, God, you're in me and I'm in you and they're in us. We're all linked together to realize this. As Rufus Jones says, God's life and our life are so bound together. It's like vines with branches, like bodies with parts. So corporate are we that you can't give a cup of cold water to the least person in the world without giving it to God. What does it take to have the courage to storm the beaches of conflict and hate with love and forgiveness? Apparently stoning someone to death is hot work. It doesn't happen quickly. You've got to throw a lot of rocks. And so the stone throwers shed their coats and laid them at the feet of their organizer, a man named Saul. This Christian hater would have then been close enough to see Stephen's courage, close enough to hear his words of forgiveness. A few chapters later in the book of Acts, we hear the story of Saul on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians when he hears the voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And surely Saul remembered the face and the voice of Stephen and made the connection. I and you and you and me and 
them in us were we're all together. Saul, why are you persecuting me? He sees the face of Stephen. And the haters changed into a lover. Saul becomes Paul. And the rule guy becomes the guy of radical grace. What difference could your life make? Let's pray together. Give us both wisdom and courage, O God, to know when it's our turn to stand and the strength to stand in your love. Amen.